If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Mark. We began this study of this book last week, and we're going to continue moving through seeing the greatness of our Savior Jesus Christ in many ways. In so many ways, this is the greatest story ever told, masterfully detailed out for us by the author Mark. As he writes, we are going to see the powerful working of Jesus Christ as we continue to see the introduction to Jesus Christ. Last week, we covered significant background information about the book of Mark and how Mark the background from which he writes, the people that he writes to. And then we did cover that first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Last week we noted how audacious of a claim that that would be. The good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus, the Son of God. As C.S. Lewis most, uh, very famously once said, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. Well, Mark intends to show us exactly who Jesus Christ is, who this man is, and that presentation is going to demand from us a response. Mark wants us to see the, the greatness of Jesus Christ and all of His splendor and all of His glory. And he, he tells us in a very rapid pace fashion, the, as he moves from story to story, the, the significance of the acts of Jesus Christ, the authority that he has, but then also what it looks like to follow him as he beckons us to do so. Even in this introductory section of this book where, where he is still setting up the rest of the gospel, he's setting up this, this grand narrative for us. Mark does want to get into the meat of the story quickly, but before he does so, he wants you to know exactly who this individual is, who Jesus Christ is. And so today we will see two initial aspects of the way of the Messiah. We will see how that way was prepared for Jesus Christ, and then how Jesus Christ Himself proclaimed the way. Let's begin with the preparation of the way of the Messiah. Christ's way was prepared. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Well, I'm just going to begin from the beginning. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one call, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. We see in this prophecy that there was a forerunner to Christ who had come, whose purpose was to prepare the way for Christ. This passage is, is really pulls from two Old Testament texts. One is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which reads, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But Mark also quotes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. These prophecies were fulfilled by one who is known as John the Baptist. And that Malachi quotation, that one is of particular interest Later in the book of Malachi, it was noted that this forerunner, this, this messenger who was to come and prepare the way of the Lord, was to be none other than Elijah the prophet. There was a day of judgment coming, and Elijah was going to come, and he was going to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers. Well, John the Baptist, he bursts onto the scene, coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He is that voice of the one crying in the wilderness, and he fulfills this prophecy, at least he does so in part. And in many ways, this should bring us great comfort, that, that John the Baptist is spoken when John was prophesied to come, <clears throat> and John did come. This should, this should bring us comfort because when we see that the prophecies in the Old Testament, and we see that when God says He's going to do something, He does it. When God says, I will send my messenger, and then He does so, God keeps His promises. He said He would send a messenger, and He did so. He said He would send the Messiah, and He did so. And His name is Jesus Christ. But John was prophesied. Let's, let's look at the ministry of John the Baptist and how he, he proclaimed this coming of the Messiah. John's role was to prepare the people for the Messiah. That's what the, the prophecy says. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Prepare. Clear the way for Him. And so we read in verses 4 through 8, the ministry of John the Baptist. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the countryside of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the sandal strap of whose the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. Here was John, the one who was prophesied he would prepare the hearts of the people who, who had come to him. And as much as the ministry of John was anticipated, right, there's this, there's this tremendous prophecy that, that a messenger would come preparing the way for the Messiah. People looked forward to that. There was very common in the, the Jews. They, the Jews were looking forward to the coming of Elijah. They were greatly anticipating Elijah's coming. Well, as much as this ministry of John was anticipated in the spirit and the power of Elijah, his role was not to point people to himself but to point people to someone else. John came baptizing. And we typically think of baptism as a distinctly Christian practice, right? And this is what Christians do. We, we baptize individuals. Well, there was a thing known as baptism in those days, even before John, 
But it looked differently and it served a different purpose than we understand baptism today. In those days, Jews were seldom baptized. Baptism was something that was for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism, and they needed to go through a special ritual cleansing in order to be considered clean and part of the covenant community. And when you think about that purpose of what that baptism was intended to accomplish for the Gentile proselytes as they were converting to Judaism, for John to come along and say, hey, you Jews, you need to repent and you need to be baptized, that would have been a very strange thing for John to say. Especially if we consider that, that this time of, of when John comes onto the scene, this was during a time when, at least from outward appearances, the religious leaders of the day, it, it seems like they actually want to follow what the law of the Lord says. Right? They're, they're studying the law of God, and there's debates about exactly how they ought to be obeying it. You know, there's the different sects, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there's the different groups that are kind of jockeying for position and such. But at least on the surface, it seems that, that, that they were interested in the law of God and were making efforts to obey it. If we look at the history of the Jewish people, we see that the Jews had been disciplined by God for hundreds of years for failing to observe the law of God. Disciplined by God for, for stumbling into idolatry and worshiping these false gods, running headlong into worship of other false gods. But here they are, and it finally seems like they seem to at least get it to somewhat, right? Again, at least on the outward appearances, it would seem so. But they are to worship God alone. They're to follow His commands. But now here John comes along and says, hey, you Jews, you need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to be cleansed. It's been strange for the Jewish people to hear. It's important to note here that John's message was fundamentally one of repentance. Now, we understand baptism to be an outward sign of an inward reality, and that was no less true here in our text. They came, John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That could be translated as baptism because of repentance or a baptism that results from repentance. The baptism was to symbolize the repentance. It was to be representative of the genuine repentance of the hearts of the people. Now, here we are introducing this word repentance as we're studying this book. We have to ask the question, okay, what is repentance? What is this concept? Sadly, this word repentance, that concept has been a source of controversy within Christianity for many years now. There are some, indeed, that would claim that repentance is not necessary at all for salvation. Others on the other side of the pendulum would insist that re repentance is a necessary work that we must do in order to come before God. So what is this word? What is this concept of repentance? Well, the word in isolation, the word repentance by itself, simply mean, means to change one's mind about something. You're thinking one way, but then you've changed your mind and now you're thinking a different way about that thing instead. The word for repentance is often used in context where the listeners are encouraged to, to turn away from one way of thinking and to turn to another way 
of thinking. So we look back into the Old Testament and, and how the prophets would call the people to repentance and to turn away from their false idols and turn to the one true and living God. They were to repent. They were to turn. And so the idea of turning or changing directions becomes connected to the concept of repentance. Some have wondered about the connection between repentance and faith. How, how do these two concepts come together? I believe it is best to view them as two sides of the same coin. <clears throat> repentance is turning away from a false belief system, and faith is turning to the one true God. There's a turning away and a turning to. Both are necessary, and neither one is a work. But though repentance itself is not a work, it should result in some change of behavior in some ways. And that's, that is illustrated even here within our text today. And allow me to illustrate this even with, with uh, just even where we are geograph geographically. If I were to leave the building here and drive towards 10th Street, and if I were to take a right and say, I'm trying to get to 265, well, if I've taken a right, have I gone the right direction? No, I have not. I have, I'm believing something that is false by saying, this is the way to 265. I have a false belief. Well, now someone has to come along and challenge that belief and say, hey, Ken, you're not believing something that's true right now. This is not the way to 265. You need to turn around and go the opposite direction. Well, repentance and faith, where they come together, two sides of the same coin, I have to believe that this person is telling me the truth, that I am, in fact, going the wrong way. Repentance then says, okay, I'm changing my mind. I no longer believe I'm going the right way. The right way is the other way. Well, that faith in what has been communicated to me, that change of mind about the direction I'm going, will then result in me turning the vehicle around and going the opposite direction and heading back towards 265. If I stay my course, it may legitimately be asked if I have believed the other person or if I actually have changed my mind about that thing. Well, here in John's ministry, he was calling people to repentance. And that repentance was to be demonstrated in that public profession of faith, that need for God's cleansing of them. Lord, I yes, I need to be cleansed of my sins. And so they were coming forward to be baptized. This is why John calls out to, to the other in, in other contexts. Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Okay, you say you've changed your mind. I hope that's true. Bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Well, John was helping people understand their need for cleansing, thus preparing their hearts for the one who, who could ultimately cleanse them, Jesus Christ. And so it says everyone was going to him. He, he was proclaiming a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And it says the whole country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him. That's a significant amount of people. They're just flocking to John of the Baptist out there in the wilderness. And I can't help but ask at this point, why so much interest here? What's the draw? Is it just, is it just because there's something novel happening here? Why is everyone coming out to see this man who's dressed as the way he is? Let's think about the context of the Jewish people at this time. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. 
the last of the Old Testament books to be written, the last of the prophets. It comes after the Jews had, had returned to the land. They were, they were in exile for Babylon for years. God powerfully brings them out of, of exile. He restores them back to the land. Zerubbabel helps them understand that they need to rebuild the temple, and they do so. Ezra seeks to rebuild the hearts of the people as he instructs them in the law of God. Nehemiah comes along. He says, hey, you know, we, we need to restore our city. We need to rebuild Jerusalem. And they do so. And from that point forward, they all happily observe the law of God, and they worship the one true God and Him alone, and they perfectly observe the law of the Lord, right? No, that's not how that turns out. Even within these historical books, we see Nehemiah pulling his hair out in frustration over the people who made commitments to observe God's Word, and yet so quickly were going after idolatry. And this is the cycle of the people. And so we have the book of Malachi that's, that's written as a warning to the people. God says, I am not pleased with you. You are not living according to my word. You are not living as you ought. And so he calls the nation to repentance. He promises judgment on those who persist in their sin. But then he promises to visit his people. And in so doing, though, he warns that if they do not repent, that he will visit in judgments, but that there would be a time of restoration, that he would send Elijah to come and prepare the way for his coming and then that's it. No more word from the Lord. No more prophets in Israel. That's the last prophetic word spoken for over 400 years. If you read through the Old Testament, it seems as though there's, all, there's always a prophet around. Right? If you line up the timeline, we think of the, the, the minor prophets, we have the historical books, and we have the, the prophetic literature. If you line up the timeline of where those prophets fit in, there's, there's almost always a prophet. And then even, even as you're reading the narratives, there's different prophets that show up that didn't even write Scripture, but they're there prophesying. They're speaking the Word of God to the kings or to, these, to the people. There's always a prophet around. And all of a sudden, God goes silent. Not for one year, not for 10 years or 50 years, but for 400 years, generation after generation. And these weren't peaceful years either. There was incredible persecution upon the Jews. The Persians had been overthrown by Alexander the Great, and one of his generals desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on it. An abomination to the Jews. That led to a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. Many Jews died through all of this. They gained some measure of freedom only to have Rome swoop in and establish their rule. And so through it all, through this 400 years, they're, they're oppressed and, and there's fighting and there's, there's persecution and then there's some degree of freedom, but then there's always some other foreign entity ruling over them. And all this time, the people are wondering, where is this Messiah? God, you promised to send your anointed one. You promised that Elijah would come. Where is he? Where is your prophets? And then finally, after all this time, finally, there is a prophet in Israel. John is preaching in the wilderness. 
But is he the prophet? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? We're familiar with the saying, you know, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? We have that saying. Well, here we have John the Baptist. Well, he looks like a prophet. Camel hair and and a leather belt. These details are intended to to call our our minds to Elijah the prophet. There's a description in in 2 Kings about how Elijah appeared, and and he wore this this tunic of hair and this leather belt around his waist, and so that's associating John the Baptist with Elijah. Here he's out in the wilderness. Probably smelled like a prophet (laughs) out there laboring along, preaching in the wilderness. But most importantly... He talks like a prophet. Here is one sent to prepare the way for the Lord and His message. It's the same one proclaimed by Malachi. It's the same one proclaimed by the other prophets in the Old Testament. Repent. Repent. You need to be cleansed. You need God's work in your life. So the people longing for a genuine word from the Lord, hungry for the coming of the Messiah. They flock to hear John in the wilderness. And many obey the word of the prophet. And they repent and are baptized as an outward profession of what had been going on within their hearts. But John's message is not about himself. All right, this man is not a self-serving prophet. You know, there, there are many who claim to be prophets today. They always seem to be self-serving individuals, right? If you listen to them long enough, they're, they're always seeking to get your money in their pockets, right? Well, that's not the case with John. John is not that way. Biblical prophets do not do that, and John's message was focused on someone else. Look at verses 7 and 8. He preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. Don't look to me. There's someone greater coming. In fact, he's so great, the strap of whose sandals, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie them. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In many ways, we could summarize John's message in two ways. It's John says, it's not about me, all right? You're coming to hear me, and and I'm grateful for that, and I want want to tell you the word of the Lord. I want to call you to repentance. I want to show you your need for the anointed one. But let me tell you something. It's not me. And he points the people unto the one who was to come. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This is a good thing for us to remember. As we're engaging with different people about Jesus Christ telling others about Jesus, serving people for the sake of Jesus, we must remember that it's not about us, right? It's it's, it's not about proving myself. It's not about demonstrating that I've got the perfect arguments. We we do an apologetics in our Sunday morning, uh, Sunday school class, right? We want to help people understand the truth of God's Word, but, but ultimately it's not about us, right? It's not about proving that we have the better arguments, that I'm smarter than you, when we serve people, we're, we're trying to reach out to people with, with, with service. It's not about us. We'll be pointing people to Jesus Christ. Have humility, a willingness to be burned for the sake of service. 
because it's not about us. If we're serving for the sake of getting attention from man, we're pointing people to the wrong person. John pointed people forward to the work of Christ, and we're called to point people backwards, but to the exact same thing. We're to point people to Jesus Christ. John says, I baptize you with water, but there's a better baptism coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One of the most significant promises found in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah was the promise of the new covenant. And within that promise, God promised to, to give new hearts to the people. You're, you have hearts of stone. He's going to take out that heart of stone and, and give a heart of flesh. He's going to put a, a new spirit within His people. Well, that promise was to be fulfilled through the work of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit worked powerfully throughout Jesus' ministry. It empowered and, and strengthened it, Jesus Christ Himself. It empowered and strengthened John for His ministry. It is the defining mark of all those who follow Him. And even now the presence of the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. Jesus' ministry will be marked by the mighty empowerment of the Spirit, and ultimately the ongoing ministry of Christ through His believers is carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus departed, He says, I will send My Spirit. He will empower you. And John says, that's the one you need to look for. I can pour water. I can dunk you in water. I can drench you. But only He can give you the Holy Spirit. So John prepares the people by showing them their own need for cleansing and then pointing them to Jesus Christ, the one who can actually cleanse them and give them the Holy Spirit. John proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. Well, as Mark continues to establish the prophecy and the preparatory work of John the Baptist, well, it's time for the real hero to enter the scene. Look at verses 9 and following. <clears throat> in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here we see Christ presented not just as another prophet, not just as a, as a wise teacher, but presented as the Son of God. Well, I don't know what's going on with our slides. They seem to be broken, but Christ is presented in power by a declaration from Almighty God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a wise teacher. He's not just someone to look up to and follow like, oh, yes, I, I, I think Jesus is a good teacher, a good one to learn from. No, no, no. Here we have the testimony, not just of John the Baptist, but of God Himself. You are my beloved Son. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like for the people who were there that day? Hearing the voice of God thunder from the heavens, the awe that would have been upon the people. Jesus' baptism often raises questions. John's baptism was supposed to be one of repentance. 
Well, if Jesus is the Son of God, and if He is truly God in human flesh, well, He had nothing to repent from. He had no sins within His own life. He didn't need to be cleansed. What's He doing being baptized? What is Jesus doing? I think there are several things that we could say. As we think about the concept of baptism, baptism later on is, is it becomes a distinctly Christian practice. We, we think of it in terms of identification with something. When we're, when we're being baptized, we are identifying ourselves with the body of Christ. We're identifying ourselves with the person and the work of Christ. We're dying, identifying ourselves with the death of Christ and ourselves dying to sin and being raised to life together with God. Well, when Jesus goes out to be baptized by John, He identifies Himself with John's message. Later in this same passage, we're going to see Jesus calling people to the same thing that John did, repentance. So, Jesus identifies with John's message. But He also identifies Himself with sinful humanity, the the humanity that He came to serve and to save. Though He Himself needed no cleansing… He would one day take the place of sinful humanity upon the cross. And so, by being baptized by John, he identifies himself with sinful humanity, though he himself had no sin within himself. And finally, it is through this act that serves as the authentication of Christ as the Messiah. It is here that God makes the powerful assertion of who Jesus Christ is. It is here that Christ is initially presented as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So we have the presentation of Christ in a powerful way. Well, in typical Markan fashion, he doesn't linger here, but he immediately goes on to the next thing. Immediately, Christ is driven into the wilderness, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Here we see God's preservation of Christ in the midst of His temptation. Christ was preserved even in the midst of His testing. You know, this whole early section of the book of Mark is about the preparation of Jesus Christ for His public ministry. We see the the preparatory work of John the Baptist as he prepares the way for the people. We see the presentation of Christ, and now we see the preservation of Christ even through the testing that He endures in the wilderness. The wilderness in the Scriptures is often a place of God's preparation work within His people We see God preserving and preparing Moses for 40 years in the wilderness. We see God preserving and preparing Israel for the promised land with 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And we see God preserving and preparing Elijah, even as Elijah was in the wilderness, as he was preparing him for additional ministry to the king of Israel. Well, here is Jesus Christ, preserved and prepared for His public ministry, 40 days in the wilderness. The details here are striking. He was with the wild animals. That shows the isolation. There's no other people around, but also the danger inherent within the wilderness. But God's servants, the angels, they are minister to Him. 
And so, even as God often prepares His people through the wilderness experiences, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of that. He is the ultimate Israelite, the ultimate Moses, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate servant, the ultimate man, prepared and preserved for His task. The way of Christ, it has been prepared. John prepared the way. God presented the Christ. He preserves Him through testing in the wilderness. Well, the time has come. The time has come. It's time. Nothing more needs to be accomplished. Jesus must begin His public ministry. And so we see verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here we have Christ's way proclaimed. Christ's way proclaimed by the Messiah Himself. We see that Jesus, He comes, the Christ comes at the right time. He says, the time is fulfilled. No more waiting. The Messiah has come. It is the right time. Think of the passage in Galatians where it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. At the exact right moment in history, Jesus Christ enters onto the scene. It's the right time. It's the right kingdom. It says the kingdom of God is at hand. That phrase is at hand could also be translated as has come near. There's a, there's a nearness aspect of the kingdom. The grammar of the verb indicates that, that the focus is on the present reality of the action, that, that the kingdom has come near. It's, it's right there in front of them. It's in their midst. The beginning of the rival of the kingdom of God is right there upon them. coming of the kingdom implies several things. And there's, there's a man, he was a great theologian, his name was Alva McLean. He wrote this, a great book called The Greatness of the Kingdom, where he argues that the kingdom of God is, is one of the central themes of Scripture. And that's it's presented here even so in the book of Mark as well. Well, in there he writes about the concept of the kingdom, and he notes that a kingdom must have three elements. First, there must be a king with adequate power and authority. Second, there must be subjects of the king. And third, there must be the actual rulership, the actual kingship of his king over his people, the exercising of the kingship. Well, here Christ announces the arrival of the kingdom. Here in other places, Jesus speaks of the kingdom as as something that's kind of already begun. It's it's already began to unfold before them. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's it's right there. And the way that Jesus speaks of the kingdom is worth noting is He speaks of it in, in two ways. I mentioned one way already. On the one hand, He talks about it as though it's already right them, right there in front of them in their midst. In one text, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, is He casting out demons by the power of God? Yes, He is. Well, then the kingdom of God has come upon them. 
It's not something that's built by human hands. It's something that God establishes. But then on the other hand, there are times where he speaks of the kingdom as as something that's still future, as something that the people are to look forward to. He speaks of the kingdom as a time when there will be a physical expression of that kingdom on the earth. And so these two different ways that he talks about the kingdom, these these two aspects that that we must embrace both sides of these. There's, there's There's the already aspect and then there's also the the not yet of what is still to come. And this way of thinking about the kingdom is consistent throughout the Gospels. It's consistent even in the book of Acts as the apostles are are teaching about the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's consistent even through Paul's writings. As he says in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so there are aspects of the kingdom where where we can participate in and we can enter into the kingdom now, and yet we look forward to a future day when there will be a future kingdom that will be established on the earth where Christ will rule and reign over all things. Misunderstandings about this dynamic of the kingdom, the, the already and the not yet, has led to some pretty awful abuses over the years. There have been many men who have sought to establish Christ's kingdom here on earth through their own power and might. Even today, there are those who believe that we as believers are to usher in the kingdom by converting enough people to Christianity or by taking over the government and setting up a Christian government. What they miss, that the Scripture says that it is God who establishes His kingdom. It is God who builds His kingdom. It's not something that we can do in our own power, in our own strength. We get to proclaim the kingdom. We get to be messengers of the kingdom. We get the blessing of engaging in kingdom works as we reach out and love the world around us. But we cannot build it ourselves. God builds His kingdom. He doesn't build it with swords. He doesn't build it with guns. He doesn't come with political maneuverings. It comes with a king, Jesus Christ, announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it comes with an offer to enter into that kingdom. But it's not through paperwork or seeking asylum. And we enter into the right kingdom through a right response the message of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to put that last slide up. It's being goofy up for me again. But Jesus declares, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. John preached repentance, pointing people forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus here preaches repentance. He calls for faith in the good news, ultimately faith in Himself. The apostles would later preach repentance. They pointed people back to Jesus Christ. And we today must preach repentance as well, pointing people to Jesus Christ. One commentator wrote, the call to repentance will never become obsolete until human sin has been completely vanquished. This was a message that was central to Jesus' ministry. 
He's prepared for this task. He was prepared for this message. The way was prepared. The hearts of the people were prepared. And in this verse, this is intended to be a a summary. As as Mark is getting ready to set up the rest of the gospel of Mark and, and show how Jesus did and conducted His ministry as He did all these wonderful works, this is a summary statement of His message as He went out preaching. Repent and believe in the good news. All of us must come to grips with what it means to repent and trust in Christ. All of us on a daily basis must be considering what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. What does it look like? Because the truth is is that Jesus is not interested in half-hearted followers. Are you in the kingdom or are you not in the kingdom? And as this book unfolds, we'll find a picture of what it means to truly follow Jesus. The way of Christ is the way of service. It's the way of self-sacrifice that's ultimately going to find its expression in His death on the cross. And it's only through trusting in Him and His work that we enter into the kingdom. And so the question comes, will you repent and trust? in this servant king. This is a question not only for unbelievers to people who have not trusted Christ, but it's a question for believers as well. We all have sin in our lives. And if you know Christ and you're already part of His kingdom, we don't get a free pass just to live however we want. We ought to desire to live as good citizens of the kingdom of God. Trusting in Christ means that we trust that that His ways are better for us. It means that that we don't seek to live our own way, but that we've repented of that, and we continually repent of that, looking unto Jesus Christ and trusting in Him, in Him alone. Trusting that when He says, No, my child, Do not do that, that He has our best interests at heart. Will we repent and trust this servant king? Will you repent and trust this servant king? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the presentation of Christ. Thank you for his message. Lord, we need you. We need Jesus. We need him for our salvation. We need him for our growth and holiness. Lord, all of this is by your grace within our lives. Lord, so often we think that, that repenting means that we're just picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just willing ourselves into holiness. But Lord, you call us to look to you. You call us to look to Christ. That's, that's what we're called as we look and seek to gaze upon Jesus Christ. Repentance means that we turn away from our own strength and rest in Christ. Help us to do this, Lord, by your strength and by your might. May we honor and glorify you. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.